Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Well, finally, here we are after months of our uh, listeners requesting that we bring Peter Robbins on the Paracast. We have none other than Peter Robbins on the Paracast. Hey, Peter. Hi. How are you doing today? Oh, we're, we're okay. We'll be much better as we get into the conversation. Uh, I think Gene would probably agree with that. So, obviously, we're having you on because, among other things, uh, you've written, you co-authored a book called Left at East Gate with uh, Larry Warren. But uh, Gene and I were talking right before we called you, and Gene was wondering how it is. And Gene, I'm going to do your, your, your line here. Sorry. He was wondering how an American researcher gets involved with a top UK case. How did that come to, to pass? I'll tell you how I got involved in the incident and in a subspecialty of uh, UFO-related uh, studies in the United Kingdom. Um, in 1984, I was attending a uh, grassroots uh, meeting, a very large one, um, in Westchester, New York. Uh, the subject was the now quite famous in the UFO literature overflights of these mysterious triangle-shaped ships. Hundreds and hundreds of local people had packed a local high school auditorium, everyone from local farmers and horse breeders to Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And it was a very memorable day of people getting up and testifying to what they had seen going over their properties uh, with a lot of video footage. And at a break, I went outside and was just sort of collecting myself on the front lawn and I saw a knot of people around someone, and I kind of edged my way in. And in the middle was a, a very earnest guy um, talking about the so-called Rendlesham UFO incident uh, in 1980, uh, now regarded uh, by all who study it uh, as the best known and best documented uh, UFO case in the history of the United Kingdom. And... I realized very shortly that this was the so-called Art Wallace, which had been the pseudonym that Larry uh, had basically been assigned by the first investigator he worked with, Larry Fawcett, who was uh, at the time a police lieutenant in Coventry, Connecticut. And he had now decided to just come forward under his own name. And he was talking about his involvement, what he had seen, um, what happened to some of the guys. He was somewhat circumspect, but... I was fascinated. Uh, I think as you guys know from your long involvement in the field, that a truly authentic military witness is about as scarce as hen's teeth. We've had a history of folks coming forward with military backgrounds over the decades who have said, you know, I put my life on the line and I saw all these papers and I'm doing this at the risk of my life and having absolutely nothing to back it up. And the longer he talked, the more um, intrigued I was. And at a certain point, the town meeting was coming back into play. And um, before I went back in, I just shook his hand and thanked him for his forthrightness. And I thought to myself, this is either one of the most naive guys I've ever met, because he doesn't realize the storm that he may be bringing down on himself by speaking out on such things in public, or one of the most courageous, or maybe both. Three years passed, and I was a panelist on a uh, national UFO conference uh, in Washington, D.C. at American University. It was now 1987, and it was marking the 40th anniversary of, you know, the kickoff, so to say, of the modern age of UFO sightings. And Larry Warren was a speaker. And a 
15 minutes into his talk, I saw a MUFON rep walk up to him, whisper something in his ear, and I saw Larry literally flush, and he got quite angry, and he said, they've just told me that um, I've got, you know, five or ten more minutes when they told me I had an hour. I think what happened was other speakers before him had been allowed to go overtime. Mm. And um, the fact is that Larry was very outspoken about the way that he had been treated by uh, a certain number of investigators and so-called allies. Mm. And he said, um, I'm going, I'm leaving. And anybody that wants to hear more, come out in the hall with me. And I'd say about a third of the audience left with him. <laughs> and we stood in the hall and we listened to him. And I, I just really felt this was an important, important testimony. And I had never had access to someone like this. I was in the work about 12 years at that time. And frankly, guys, I was looking for a book-length project to sink my teeth into. And I resolved that um, hell or high water, I was going to get an interview with this guy. And the next morning, we ran into each other in the hallway, and I proposed uh, that to him. And uh, he said, well, would you like to do it? I said, well, whenever's good for you. And he said, how about next weekend? And the next weekend, he was a guest on my couch on the east side of New York City, and I did about a 10-hour recorded interview with him, and boy, did he let loose. And towards mm -hmm. Sunday afternoon, um, I said, why are you giving me all this information, some of which you say has never been on the record? He said, frankly, when I heard you speak on that panel discussion, I knew I had found the guy I want to write a book with about this. And my response was to the effect of, um, I'm flattered, but maybe um, you might have considered, oh, a published author, as opposed to somebody who's not terribly well-known and not tried like me. He said, no, let's talk facts here. You got into this work because of your sister's uh, abduction experiences, and that is, in fact, how I became involved in this work overnight and ferociously a dozen years before. And I know you've got the compassion. I know you've had a serious UFO sighting. You're articulate. You seem intelligent. What do you say? And we laid out some basic rules. Um, he, as long as he got to tell his story on his own terms, I was free to pursue any avenues of information to disprove him, which I thought, if I was able to, that would make for a pretty uncomfortable schizophrenic book. But we shook hands on it. And that autumn, I got to work in earnest. And that was how I began uh, my path in this area of study. I'm just interested in one thing that you mentioned here, which is that he had not been treated well yes. by the UFO research community. He was forced to leave his spot as a speaker prematurely, even though other people were allowed to go over time. Why? What is there about him specifically that caused this to happen? Well, number one, I've spoken at more UFO conferences over the past 25 years than I care to remember. And you have um, overseers, you know, organizers, um, producers who are extremely responsible, and they watch that watch, and they give you the 10-minute signal, the 5-minute signal, the 2-minute signal, and you sum up and you're off. Other ones who err on the side of niceness, I don't know how else to say it, and uh, as a result, being unprofessional, and let speakers go over 5, 10, 12 minutes. I was once uh, the last speaker on an all-day-long conference um, uh, out on Long Island many years ago, and everyone was allowed to go a little over. And right before I spoke, the organizer came up to me contrite and embarrassed and said, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Here's your check. Nice meeting you. Go home. And I never said a word. So I think it may have been a combination of things, but uh, MUFON 
even to this day, bless their hearts, and I'm a member, and I'll be speaking at their national conference um, on an unrelated subject uh, in Denver this August, and I wish them well, and, you know, we have some chance of helping people normalize their attitudes with this organization. But um, they never really acknowledge the case. To this day, there has never been a single paper on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident in any MUFON journal, and we're going on 29 years now. I think part of it is a funny kind of xenophobia of if it didn't happen here, how important can it be? Mm. Um, a weird reverse nationalism. Doubly awkward in this case because literally all of the principals involved as eyewitnesses and participants with a smattering of civilians in the area were um, Air Force enlisted personnel and officers. Also, at the time, um, the head of MUFON and Larry kind of had a personality clash and you've got to meet Larry to understand. He's a tough, no-nonsense, in-your-face kind of guy. He grew up, I know his mom, um, she's a remarkably decent woman, um, with a very strict understanding that there is right and there is wrong. And when you see wrong, you address it. Larry is, in fact, a classic whistleblower personality type, and I use that as a specific psychological reference, um, probably the best known in our culture is Karen Silkwood, um, who was wonderfully uh, portrayed by Meryl Streep um, in a movie based on her all-too-short life, a woman who worked for a nuclear military contractor, Kerr McGee, and was lethally exposed to uh, radiation poisoning. And on her way to meet a New York Times reporter, she was in a quote-unquote freak car crash and died. Yeah. Larry has suffered tremendously at the hands of people that weren't there who pontificate, you know, in text and now on the Internet can say any darn thing they want, but have no idea what he went through. And what I frankly thought was going to be a year or two's um, hard work, maybe a trip to England, a certain amount of um, archival research and Freedom of Information Act actions and cost me a couple of grand, and of course result in wealth, fame, and women throwing themselves at my feet, um, resulted in almost 10 years of returning to England to, together and separately about 15 times at our own expense. Between us, we spent over $100,000 of unrecoverable money. Uh, when we sold the book, it was at the advice of a mediocre literary agent who got us an extremely bad contract with a company that turned out to be, well, basically crooks and cooked the books. Our English publisher, I thought, was terrific, and they helped make it a major bestseller in the United Kingdom. And you can only imagine what an exciting month it was to do a 15-city speaking tour all over the country with accolades and respect from the BBC. And um, we changed the way people think about UFOs in the United Kingdom, and I'm very, very proud of that, even to the point that former chief of staff of the Ministry of Defense, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Hill Norton, as a member of parliament, took that book, our book, onto the floor of parliament and went basically nose to nose with the then secretary for defense asking him very hard questions out of our book. Yeah, the perks on the job are amazing. The money is awful, but um, I'm eternally proud of what we were able to accomplish. But Larry is a tough guy, and he um, he doesn't take kindly to innuendo or um, people who don't know what happened to him saying that they do. Sounds like we'd get along great. Oh, this, <laughs> this would be exciting. This would be exciting. It's interesting to point out, too, here that some of our listeners may never have heard about Rendlesham 
or if they did, they read the Reader's Digest version. Sure. And um, maybe before yeah. we go on to some of the yeah. nuts and bolts, some of the questions that David and I have, yeah. perhaps over the next few minutes and before that, let's do the first interruption, okay? Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Peter Robbins, UFO investigator, and he's been doing that for a long time, and he's also co-author, along with Larry Warren, of Left at Eastgate. So let's have... A little bit of unvarnished commentary. What happened at Rendlesham? I'd be glad to lay that out for you in the uh, compressed version. Not too Number compressed. One. We don't want no, to no. just... Uh, well, good. We have some time, and um, it's an honor sharing this with your audience. It is, I think, even with Roswell, and um, I work for the city of Roswell as a consultant, and I'm proud of my association with them. I think it's about as important case as we in ufology have ever gotten our hands on. It has something of everything. And it's set in Suffolk, East Anglia. At the time, a large concentration of American troops uh, on a least NATO base and a sister uh, RAF base called RAF Bentwaters, uh, where Larry was, and RAF Woodbridge. The incident, so to say, was actually a series of events that occurred over three consecutive nights between Christmas and New Year's 1980 and Larry experienced it firsthand as an American Air Force security cop uh, Airman First Class who had been specially trained in two areas one was anti-terrorism and the other was uh, working around nuclear ordnance now two extremely important backstories to set this story against one is that by virtue of our then treaty under Reagan and Thatcher uh, with the United Kingdom, we were only allowed one type of nuclear ordinance in the UK and in a very minimal amount. Some of you listeners may remember the so-called MX missiles. They were flatbed railway mounted missiles made to be launched off those flatbeds and also, of course, could be rolled into railway tunnels for uh, protection. 
in fact, fully against our uh, treaty with the United Kingdom, we had something like 350,000 kilotons of nuclear ordnance parked under this twin base complex. For those of you that have uh, never exploded your own, own nuclear device, what is a one kiloton effect? Um, if you were to draw a target uh, with a bullseye in the middle of a mile diameter, that would all be glass, and everything in the radiating nine miles beyond would be dead or dying. 350,000 kilotons. That's the first part of the backstory. The second part is if you go to any newspaper, local international section or a major newspaper like the New York Times, for the last week of December 1980, you would see one major lead story. At that time, the Soviets were increasingly concerned about a so-called pro-democracy movement uh, emanating out of Gdansk, uh, Poland. Uh, it was headed by a shipyard electrician uh, who turned out to be an extraordinary man in European history, Lech Walesa, who went on to become the first freely elected president of Poland. What we didn't know, we in the public, because it wasn't published, either because uh, the media didn't know or felt it was inappropriate to publish, was that over 100,000 crack Soviet troops were massed on the Polish border and had that pro-democracy movement, quote-unquote, gotten out of hand, they were ready to roll over that border and um, create uh, a situation. Now, NATO bases all over Europe and England, uh, including RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, already had literally almost every single one of their fighter aircraft gone. They were all at forward operating locations in West Germany ready to attack the Soviets had they rolled into Poland. In other words, we were very close to war, and we the people didn't know that. Um, this is the backdrop against which the UFO incursion was set. Uh, the first night, um, several uh, military police at, R at the east gate of RAF Woodbridge observed a light go down in the woods and radioed for permission to go out and investigate in the way that they would investigate a crash. All seemed fairly certain it wasn't a crash. There was no discernible explosion, no ground tremor, um, no fire, but they got permission and they headed out. I think it was four men. Soon after, in a very remote area of forest, they came upon a thing. It was triangular in shape, about seven feet or so on each side, under its own control seemingly. It looked like black glass and it was just literally hovering and moving around slowly between and around trees at about chest height. They got close enough to see markings that I can only characterize as letter forms or hieroglyphics unlike anything they had ever observed. One man um, reflexively pulled his uh, service weapon and went into a two-handed crouch aiming his uh, pistol at the thing, then reholstered it. And uh, another man, Jim Peniston, took out his notepad. And um, some of you may have uh, seen Jim on any number of documentaries uh, mm -hmm. informing us about how he drew pictures of it, tried to get a, a sense of the writing in his notebook, and made notes. And if you look at page after page of these notebook entries, within a few minutes his handwriting is out of control. He's very anxious, to put it mildly. The men have intermittent memories of what then happened, and hours later, three of them returned. Four went out, three came back. That fourth man 
was gone for some time. Uh, whether or not he was subject to what we would call abduction, I do not know. Or whether or not he freaked out and sort of lived off the woods for the next days, I don't know. He did return. He's never gone on record with his memories or experiences. Unidentified craft picked up on radar and visual to the naked eye were seen coming in over the area. These two bases are separated by a forest called the Rendlesham Forest, hence the case's name. Uh, at one point, some of them started shining down beams of light. Remember, this is December, it's temperate, it's moist, and there's a high uh, moisture content in the air. So these, I could only compare them by the descriptions I've heard to industrial lasers, caught, you know, these billions of uh, particles of moisture. And you could see these lines of light going down into the area where nuclear weapons were stored. Uh, as I understand it, they were observed fully, uh, they were fired upon, there were no hits, they left. The next night, these incursions continued. UFOs were seen over the twin base complex, and a number of landing sites were discovered in the surrounding woods. When I say landing sites, I mean a very specific thing. There were equilateral, triangular, circular impressions, X number of feet apart, suggesting pressure on those three circles. In the areas above, the forest canopy had literally been ripped out as whatever came down and settled in the woods did just that. We know from uh, sophisticated pressure tests and the other kind of analysis that was done that whatever sat in these sites weighed several tons each. Where they left impressions in the ground and in the areas where bark was torn off of trees and the like, they left something like four, four ten times plus the uh, amount of background count beta and gamma radiation readings uh, beyond the very minor amount, which is uh, normal in nature. Um, on the third night, the big night, um, men were taken off their postings. The sightings were continuing. And remember, this is a red alert on all these bases. Red is one step below black, and black is war. So you'd think they'd want to keep posted that night. But they were taken off around midnight and brought to the motor pool where they topped off the tanks of the vehicles. Light alls were attached, and light alls are nothing more than kind of the gas-fed military equivalent of the big Klieg uh, lights that most of us associate with Hollywood movie premieres. Mm -hmm. And they headed off base with fully armed troops, another violation of our treaty with Great Britain. And from RAF Bentwaters, they were taken close to RAF Woodbridge, brought up a logging road, told to disembark, weapons were collected, they were broken up into three-person groups, and told to go into the woods that way and quote-unquote investigate a disturbance. Static electricity charge in the air was ferocious. These were not helmeted troops, they wore berets. And these are young guys with full heads of hair. In some cases, the static electricity was so intense that men like Larry found that their berets were being pushed off their heads. Let that settle in for a moment. Larry observed one man who was broken down and sobbing and trying to be calmed by another Air Force personnel. Meanwhile, a mile, half a mile away, the base deputy commander, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Hall, was investigating with a team of his own. And 
these lights came in over them, shine beams of light down at them. Halt was recording it as it went, and 16 minutes of the several hours that Halt recorded are now in the public uh, domain, and you can hear the tension in the voices of these military personnel. They discovered other landing sites, made uh, impressions in plaster of Paris, etc. Larry and the men that he was involved with were brought out to a farmer's field ultimately. Uh, on a survey map of that part of England, it's called Capel Green, and ordered to surround a really, um, I'd have to call it a paranormal phenomenon. It was a ground fog. And if you've ever seen any film shot in rural England, ground fogs are as common as they can be. But it was circular or oval in shape. It was self-illuminated and a foot or so off the ground. And they were ordered to surround it. And as uh, they took their positions, and this was several dozen American Air Force personnel, they all... And they were unarmed at the time. That's correct. That is correct. Thank goodness, I think. And one thing that I find very disturbing um, as a sub-note here is that the officers ordering them to surround this anomalous mass seemed to know what they were doing. It was like a procedure that had been followed before, and they, you know followed their orders. And then they watched as from the direction of the North Sea, and at this point you're only five or six miles from uh, the water, a red-ish light coming in slowly, getting larger, and ultimately coming in over the field, I mean imagine, and over the ground fog. And as it came down toward the ground without a sound, it exploded with such magnesium brightness that everyone was temporarily blinded. In fact, the retinas of Larry's eyes were burned. You can read the Air Force documents, medical documents, uh, supporting that and left at Eastgate. And when vision came back to them, sitting in this fog now, was a fully articulated machine of undetermined origin. Some of the troops basically panicked and ran. Most of them held their ground. And a standoff began. And after a period of time, Larry and the man standing next to him, uh, Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, observed a glowing mass coming slowly around from the other side of this thing, stop at a point where they could look into it. And they're close. They're maybe 15, 20 feet away, very close. Uh, They had been ordered, by the way, to go in to five feet of it and take a closer look. Larry felt his eyes were really burning. Uh, They almost clicked when he blinked, his metallic taste in his mouth. And as they looked into this light and it dimmed, they could see three distinct shapes. And as Larry writes, with tremendous skill and, I don't know, evocation in this chapter that he describes, and we go back and forth in writing the book, that his first shocked reaction was, this is a highly sensitive military situation. What are children doing out here? And, of course, within a few seconds, he was fully aware that these were not children. They were three beings who were not human. And the face-off continued. And after a while, a uh, ranking officer who we maintain was Wing Commander Gordon Williams came from the direction of the uh, logging road, had just come from a party, was in fancy dress clothes, stepped through the cordon of men, and at about 10 feet faced off with these beings. And the standoff went on into the night. And at a certain point, uh, 
the senior NCO, Master Sergeant Ball, started to circle the outside of the cordon of men and tap like every third guy and order him back to the staging area. And Larry was in the second to last group. And he remembered very clearly stopping where the forest meets the field and just looking back and fixing the thing in his memory and then heading back to the trucks. They were then told not to speak to anyone, not even each other, about what they had seen, brought back to the base, had a cup of coffee about dawn, completely in shock, were relieved by uh, the next team of guards. And that is the compressed version of the incident. However, what happened the next night is in its own way even more shattering. You know what? That's a cliffhanger. Perfect. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Peter Robbins, longtime UFO researcher, co-author with Larry Warren of Left at Eastgate. We're talking about the Rendlesham incident, and now the rest of the story, the compressed version of the next night. The men that afternoon were debriefed. Larry and I are both in agreement that this debriefing was classic disinformation. Now, that doesn't mean lies necessarily. Disinformation, by definition, is a skillful mixture of truth and fiction, confabulation, so to say, to produce a certain result in the people that you are giving the information to. In this case, I think, to scare the hell out of these young men into following the uh, order that was given to not discuss what they had seen. They were debriefed by three individuals, and none of them were Air Force. Two of them were guys in suits that we now know were with the field arm of the National Security Agency. The other was a uniformed naval officer. They were told that, in fact, what they had observed the night before was representative of other intelligences that come and go with impunity via high technology that we can't even begin to grasp in some ways, and that, congratulations, you are now part of uh, the national security apparatus of the United States and NATO, and you will not talk about this, and if you do, you will wish you hadn't. They were told that um, there were X number of civilizations coming and going since longer you than you boys have been alive. And, of course, we're trying to work out a way ultimately to go public with this, but it may be years away. And you are, again, not to speak about this among yourselves or to each other. And uh, if you toe the line, then if you want a career in the Air Force, you're probably on the fast track. If you cross us, they'll be held to pay. And... Larry raised his hand, being Larry, and 
said in so many words what happens um, if we do violate you know your order here and one of the guys in suits looked at him with a slightly Mona Lisa-esque smile and said quote unquote bullets are cheap and in fact that quote has been confirmed to me by other men in the room at that time one of the men I'm sorry to say um, who was very religiously challenged by this shock who went through the debriefing with the Bible in his lap when AWOL shortly after was intercepted in the States and uh, O'Hare, as I recall, in Chicago, put back on the next plane, met by military police, taken right back to Rendlesham and to RAF Bentwaters, to the best of our knowledge, giving no psychological counseling, reassigned his M16 and put out on guard mount and blew his brains out. And Larry was one of the first two men to respond and see the top of his head gone. And that made him into, uh, shall we say, an activist. That afternoon, uh, he was told, I believe by a captain, um, that people, appropriate people, wanted to um, continue his debriefing and that he should be in front of uh, the dorm where he lived at 8 o'clock that night. Uh, Adrian and other men uh, also were given the same order, and Larry observed a late-model black American vehicle with stateside plates pull up, and two guys in suits get out, and one of them walked up to him and said, you, Warren? He said, yeah, and um, he said, can I see some ID? And Larry, out of nervousness and out of curiosity and out of attitude, said, let me see some ID, at which point he saw the other man coming around and turned from his peripheral vision and observed that the guy raised what looked like a uh, can of some kind of aerosol without any label and spray him full in the face. And Larry went down and was essentially thrown into the back of the car, driven a certain distance, dragged into a indoor area, put in a little room which started to move. It was an elevator. And it went down so far that his ears popped. And Larry was missing over the next day or so. Anybody that asked was told he was on quote-unquote emergency leave. He was held uh, for more programming, um, mind screwing around, so to say, and has intermittent memories of his time underground. Some years later, he went through a very uh, detailed regressive hypnosis with Bud Hopkins, and that is published in full at the end of the book, so you find out the difference between implanted memories and actual memories to a greater degree. And um, rather than succumb to the fear, and uh, I think I would have just shut up for the rest of my life, and I think a lot of people would have, he started to do just what he shouldn't do, ask questions, pry about, talk to the other guys, and at one point got caught going through a filing cabinet, and I think was identified as a, a key troublemaker, responded by realizing maybe he had gotten himself in too deep, found that he had a legal avenue to uh, leave the service with an honorable discharge. He had signed a contract to be a police officer, and they had taken him off of that, breaking the contract. That May, he left with a fully honorable discharge, returned to upstate New York, where his mom uh, lived, and tried to get back to the world with a massive case of post-traumatic stress disorder and within a year or so um, had changed quite remarkably not for the better and decided he had to do something and so found a UFO investigator uh, in this case Larry Fawcett uh, the police lieutenant gave him full testimony on everything that he remembered pretty much minus the aliens because 
he just felt this would be suicidal, although he did go on record with that after a while, and named all the names, the locations, the people, the places. They instituted Freedom of Information Action. A year later, received a document confirming the incident written by the deputy base commander, which was leaked to a British newspaper, biggest tabloid in the world. And in October 83, the case exploded in England. And the rest is kind of history. Now, in reading about this case, uh, Peter, I think I'm not the only person who's become a little confused about some of the timeline issues and corroboration. So one thing, uh, and I've got a bunch of questions here, but first question, Larry talks about seeing these beings. Has anybody questioned Halt on this? To ask what he yes. Okay. To the best of my knowledge, even I did. Um, Halt was half a mile, a mile away from this area. He saw the craft coming in from an entirely different angle with his right. men at a distance. Halt emerges as one of the most complex players in this whole story. Charles Halt is an honorably retired Air Force officer. When this happened, he was a lieutenant colonel and a deputy base commander, arguably a very distinguished position. And 12 years later, when he retired, he was a full colonel. That is not a lot of advance in rank in 12 years. He was outed on the first day this case broke and has developed a real animus toward Larry. He has put forward that Larry was uh, meddled with his term. And indeed, Larry was, as were many other men. But he has also called into question uh, Larry's ethics, the fact that um, whether he was even there or not, which we have proven and reproven with Air Force documentation to anybody's you know, uh, level of satisfaction. Also, Larry did something that I think I would have done in the same case that has caused a repeating attack on his uh, veracity. And that was he told almost everything but he was out on the line all by himself and the difference between saying I saw this craft it landed here I watched everything happen and saying oh yeah and there were three little glowing beings he made that public sometime after he told me and was accused of quote unquote changing his story as opposed to telling what he knew and with Adrian's blessings Adrian Sergeant Adrian Bastinza who had no intention of going forward and said, you can tell part of my story is your own. May have been a mistake, but the information got out. And I think for a lot of wags and people who have not met him, studied uh, the timeline carefully that, yeah, it does seem a bit suspect. I have to say 10 years of working this one case to the exclusion of everything else has convinced me beyond any doubt that Larry was and is telling the truth. So, besides Larry's testimony, do you have any other direct testimony from anyone else who witnessed the beings, who claims oh, to have yes. And it's um, in the book, and even more of it is in the uh, expanded, updated edition of the book that came out several years ago, published by Cosmo Press in England, where I add all the information that I've collected since the book was first published some years before that. And that includes letter after letter after letter from men who we name in the book who wrote to us or to Larry or to me or to our publisher. And not one of them questioned his story 
and a number of them added to the story. One was um, Airman First Class Greg Batram. I'm a little hard-pressed on the names right now, but I would direct anybody curious uh, about this particular question to go to the revised edition of Left at Eastgate, and you can read the testimony of seven or eight other military eyewitnesses and involved personnel confirming aspects of his story. Also, I think it was Sergeant Kuleas, I'm not sure, who, along with Larry, had the guts to appear on CNN's first special report. Um, in 84, CNN was a fledgling news network, and Ted Turner authorized the spending of $200,000 to chase down the authenticity of this story, and it was broadcast in three or four parts. The investigative reporter who followed the trail lost his job because of this for many years, lost his uh, contacts in the Pentagon, took him years to rebuild his career. Gulaeus makes it very clear with his face disguised by a kind of haze, but you hear him and you see him say, yeah, we saw beings. And um, Adrian, who um, has been extremely troubled emotionally by this, basically agrees to it without saying so in a follow-up book on the subject by my late and esteemed colleague Georgina Bruni, a book that was published in England called You Can't Tell the People. Excuse me, these books, are they available in the USA? Because you mentioned earlier at the original edition of Left at Eastgate, the American publisher yeah. did what happens to so many of us who have written books, yeah. kind of ripped you off. So yes. is there an American edition of the I'm, revised version? Yes. I'm pleased to say, I mean, if you're a bibliophile like me, you can chase down a hardcover first edition through a number of book services. But if you're interested in the information in its most updated form, yes, there is a book, an edition very much in print with all of the new information and all of everything that we published originally. Um, it's called Left at East Gate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. It's cover-up and investigation, and it's available um, from any book service. Amazon can be ordered through a book dealer or any other online source. It is published by Cosimo Press. The original edition, uh, which is out of print, is published by Morrow and Company. Okay. So you'll want the Cosmo Press edition. It has all the new stuff as well. Well, they do have apparently three copies left in stock over at Amazon as of the date we're doing the show. Hopefully <laughs> others will be available when people place their order because now we know that tons of people are going there to find out more about this so. book. <laughs> and you can order directly from Cosmo Press online as well. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
we're talking to Peter Robbins about Lefty Skate, the rest of the story about the Rendlesham Forest case. David indicated to me kind of through my little crystal ball here that he has thousands, millions of questions. Well, okay, so we have uh, Holt, who, who has spoken publicly about this. Oh, yeah. And, and so what, what I'm hearing here, Peter, is that Holt won't confirm Warren's story. And, and, and well, I understand yeah. that he wasn't he wasn't at the same location, all right. Mm, but presumably, correct. presumably, is it reasonable to to think that Holt would have had access to any internal reports generated from this incident, mm. and would those internal reports have included mm. that degree of detail of testimony? Wonderful question, and the answer is no. And I know that from Halt himself and from my investigative work, and I'll tell you how it works. The system that our intelligence agencies are built on is called compartmentalization. Um, the catchphrase is need to know. You may be a three-star general at the Pentagon, and you have no need to know about some classified project that some other area within the Department of Defense is working on or developing. You may be a master sergeant and be completely cleared for any number of reasons to be an insider on the case. Now, I'm going to give you an example here, and this is directly Halt telling me this, and uh, it is included in the book. Halt, when he heard that Larry Warren had said publicly on a number of occasions that not only was the NSA interested in him, but they maintained a relationship with him for several years after he got out of the service. Very clandestine, meet at fast food places, showed him a photograph, a number of photographs of the actual landing site um, of him involved indirectly in this incident that I've described on the third night. And that really set Charles Halt off. And he contacted a longtime uh, contact within the Pentagon inquiring about was Warren telling the truth or lying and Halt said in all my years in the military of you know a similar kind of contacting somebody higher up to get information nobody ever returned a call quicker to me and the response as I'm remembering it and it is included in the book um, in detail was Yes, the NSA was interested in Warren, and the reasons are really none of your business. Now, Halt also, again, his name was wired up with this incident the very first day the story broke in the news of the world in early October 1983, naming him by name. He became nicknamed the UFO Colonel. Uh, he would have Japanese film crews showing up on his home in Virginia. He had actually at one point several researchers break into his home looking for information. His son was harassed. I understand the enmity that developed here, but it became personal. And Charles Halt has done something that I don't respect as well as things I do respect. For example, he has repeatedly, when asked to speak or be involved in a documentary, make it conditional that Larry Warren not be involved. And I can give you a very good example of this. Um, some years ago, I went to the director of special projects for the Sci-Fi Channel with an outline and an idea for a feature-length documentary on this subject. I'm pleased to say it was accepted. Larry and I worked very closely with the Sci-Fi Channel in its development. 
It was uh, broadcast for the first time, I think, four years ago or so, under the name UFO Invasion at Rendlesham, and was fronted by a, a very recognized media personality, Brian Gumbel. It was an hour and a half without commercials, and we also turned over information on everybody who was involved that we had contact information, of course, including Charles Vault. And I told Larry Landsman, then the director of special projects, that when he contacted Halt, Halt would say to him, if you want me, you won't get Larry. And the logic there is, who do you want on your documentary, a full bird colonel or um, an airman whose word is questionable because, you know, he's a loose cannon. And in fact, Larry called me back several weeks later, and I could hear him kind of laughing on the other end, saying that's almost word for word what he said. And I responded, well, we'll be sorry to miss your contribution to the documentary, Mr. Hall. And he said he was quiet for a minute and said, all right, I'll do it. So they both <laughs> appear on this documentary, but Hall refused to go on camera with him. Yeah. All right. Peniston's a really interesting character, and mm. uh, he's appeared in a few different places talking about the details of this craft he saw on the ground. Now, mm. can we go through a list of the different types of unidentified objects seen over these three days, because I'm getting the feeling that there's more than a couple of different types of things. Mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, after years of interviews, studying, questioning, and re-questioning, there are three basic phenomena that we're dealing with here. One are the lights that were in the sky, the unidentifieds that came in over the Rendlesham Forest over those three nights some of which landed, took off, etc., that were really not much more than glowing lights, so we can't come to uh, any kind of educated opinion on their configuration. The other was most decidedly um, this black triangular uh, craft, too small for a human being, or um, a being really, maybe one little guy, that Peniston and Burroughs and Cabanasac and uh, the other uh, military cop came upon the first night, and the third was the larger uh, craft that Larry and the several dozen Air Force personnel on the third night observed close up. That was, it wasn't round at all. It had a rounded edge. It was larger than a truck. It tapered up toward the top where it had this red glowing light underneath and they could make out some kind of superstructure like, you know, a, a gear apparatus that it was sitting on, maybe retractable, I don't know. There was a cobalt blue glow. Larry described its surface as mother of pearl-like, that you could best see if you turned your head and looked at it peripherally. It had sort of a shimmering surface, and whether or not this was some weird aberration of physics or a perception caused in part by shock, I do not know, but shadows were observed on its surface as the men stood near, except that they didn't move when the men moved. They moved a moment or two later, and there was no ambient light behind them because none of the light alls worked when they came out to the field. Flashlights went on the fritz. Uh, the Motorola radios that were assigned to the men were not working properly. There was no moon. This is a farmer's field. So there was no light to cast a shadow, and yet there were shadows. Um, so we're dealing here, again, the ones in the sky may have been all kinds of machines of different configurations, but there are two 
distinct ones that I'm aware of. One more thing. The one that came over halt may have been, I think it was, the one that ultimately landed in the field, but I'm not 100% positive. But it was a shape with almost like an eye, a large glowing undersection, and uh, it shot out these beams of light that literally hit within inches of halt's feet, and he's the first to confirm that. Okay. Now, I've heard some of the uh, voice recording that Halt was making out in the field. Mm-hmm. Is there any thought about how it is that his voice recorder and electronic device worked, yet other electrical devices apparently failed? Mm. Well, number one, not all of the flashlights failed, and not okay. every one of the Motorola's failed. I, sh- I will say again, though, okay. that every single one of the light alls refused to turn over. They were gas-operated, and they would not start. So um, we can only guess uh, about that. I should also say, and this is from Colonel Halt himself, that the 16 minutes or whatever is in the public domain represent only a portion of what he recorded, the rest of which he has never released to the public, and which I very much encourage him and hope that he will someday. Along those lines, the military allowed him to keep that recorded material? Absolutely. And in fact, a general further up the food chain who heard about it because he mentioned it to other officers he served with said, I'd really like a copy of that. And he made him a copy. And that general made a copy for someone else. And ultimately, a copy ended up in the hands of a respected Japanese investigative writer. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Yunishi Yaoi, or Jimmy, as his nickname was. And in 84, Larry was invited to speak on this subject at a national UFO meeting in Tokyo. Ironically, 20 years later, almost to the day, I followed his path and also spoke on this subject at the invitation of a national Japanese UFO uh, reporting group. And when Larry went back, was taken back to the airport um, to return to the States, Jimmy gave him a copy of the tape. And when Larry got home, he gave out copies. And that is the reason that you and me and everyone else who has heard it has heard it because of Larry. I see. So Holt himself never released anything to the public. That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are confused about that. So it's Understandably. Clarify, but, yeah. And Holt has been very circumspect. Um, he has, without totally not telling the truth, alluded to the fact that he was responsible or that he knew certain things that he could not have known. And at one point, and I will go on record here, and if Mr. Halt or his attorneys want to contact me, they know they're welcome to, and they didn't when I first put it out. When we met with Charlie Halt in Washington, across the table from him, in rather dramatic fashion, in the food court of Pentagon City, the uh, shopping mall right across the street from the Pentagon, and spent an hour and 20 minutes recording the conversation. Of course, I gave him a copy of it. He asked me to turn off the recorder, I think, three times, and then told me things that I found absolutely mind-blowing, Larry as well, and our colleague, that was understood that this was off the record. He looked at Larry at one point, and you can read it in the transcript, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, 
But he said, you know, I can't say where you, whether you were or weren't there. We were in different places. But you have to understand, I have to be very careful about what I say on record. And I left with a feeling of respect for Charles Hall. Sometime later, he retired from the military. And as, of course, was going to happen sooner or later, now that he was out of the Air Force, was invited to speak at a UFO conference. And the first time was in England. He did a talk. And afterwards, you know, people go around you, a great talk, or can I ask a question? And several guys stood there and asked him questions. And at a certain point, one said, what do you think of Larry Warren's account of this story? And all looked at him and he said, he was a wannabe. He wasn't there. Now, this guy was a friend of mine. And he called me transatlantic a few hours later. And he said, I have to tell you something. And frankly, I went ballistic. And I contacted Charles Hall and told him if he had a problem with my doing what I was about to do, he could take it up with my attorneys. Mr. Hall never has contacted me since for or against. And what I did was at the end of the book, I put on the record the things that he had told us off the record. One of them was about him inquiring with this individual in the Pentagon about whether or not Larry was, um, you know, um, bragging or lying that the NSA had expressed a genuine interest in him. And he was the one who told me uh, how fast they got back to him. And yes, and it was none of his business. The other thing, and it's pure science fiction in a way, um, but it is the way it is. These beams of light that some of these unknowns were shining down to the ground in the weapons storage area, and that is the nuclear weapons storage area, did something that our physics completely disallows. And this is from Charles Holt's mouth. He told me to my face and Larry's that somehow against any possibility. These beams of light seem to penetrate through the hardened bunkers. And these are bunkers made of alternate layers of steel, metal, earth, steel, metal, earth, down into a holding area below which is nuclear ordnance. And his dispassionate and completely chilling phrase was, they adversely affected the ordnance. Now, obviously, they didn't adversely affect it in a way that England isn't there anymore. But I can only deduce that they um, shut them down or did something to uh, not allow them to function. That is from Hmm. Charles Hall's mouth. So Charles Hall wouldn't specifically say how it was adversely affected? He had no idea. Who does? Yeah. Hmm. We're going to split in a couple of minutes for hour two of the PowerCast. Do you have a website, by the way, that people can reach? I don't, but I do have, I'm still struggling to claw my way into the 21st century. I do have a Facebook page where I do post coming talks, and I have quite a few coming up over the next months. And I'm cautiously optimistic that in the next months I will have a a website. So you're not like Jim Mosley, for example, who still works (laughs) on a typewriter. <laughs> no, no, no. I started the book in 1987 on an IBM Selectric and then went through to an LED half-page readout, ancient PC that a friend gave me. I thought I was on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. I am not a techie. And I have a nice bio now, but it's um, on its last legs, and soon I will have probably a nice desk size HP. With a... We're trying, by the way, to tell you not to buy the HP. Oh, okay. To buy... I'm open to advice. It's called iMac. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, uh, you're, you're Mac guys. Okay. 
All right, we'll convince you after the show is over about why this needs to be done and why your life will change completely once you are assimilated. Okay. I hear you guys, and you're not the only universe. one on my case about this. Well, we're just trying to help. I mean, we know I technology. My niece and nephew and best friend and other people are, you know, get on and get with it. I understand. And also we'll convince you how to show you how to get a website up there at a good provider, one that's reliable, one that won't. You know, shut you down if you start getting some hits. Mm, you know, if you, you if you, for example, you don't want to get, if you get Doug, you know, which is, there's a site called dig.com. Mm-hmm. And if you get Doug, and we're not talking about a guy named Doug, but we're talking about if, if you get Doug on dig, you could have your site shut down because Ew. of too much traffic. Creepy. Oh, this is getting to be a little too techie for me, and I'm a techie, damn it. That's right. <laughs> you see how things go. But seriously speaking, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. on part two, we're going to talk more with Peter Robbins about Left at Eastgate, about the Rendlesham Forest incident, but he has other connections in the UFO field. This is not the only thing he does. He's not a one-trick pony, and we'll find out about that and more on the other side of the Paracast. Ray Perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world, a woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockaways. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockaways lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockaways is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockaways, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return with Peter Robbins. We've been talking pretty much through the first hour on Rendlesham, and we're going to cover a few more questions before we move on to other stuff. David, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I still have, I've got more questions. So, um, Peter. The craft that uh, Larry and these other guys circled, Yeah. did they see any markings on it along the lines of what Penniston reports having seen on the craft that he had close contact with? Absolutely nothing. What they did observe was that it was really pieced together. Larry observed um, pipe fittings where joints were in the surface of the craft, but no any kind of letter forms or anything like that. Okay, so that was only, basically, as far as you know, only Penison reports having seen these, these hieroglyphic forms. That's absolutely correct. I've never heard of anyone else involved uh, with a similar account directly or indirectly. Okay. There, there are questions about this issue of the guys not being armed. So let's go back to the timeline here. We've got three nights. Yeah. Right? Which of the nights did they go out with weapons? The third night. The third night. First two nights they go out, they don't have weapons. And, and that is... Oh, no, wait. I take that back. Okay. I only uh, 
know that John Burroughs had a sidearm. I think it was a revolver and not an automatic, a thirty-eight that he did go off base with. And again, what we're talking about here, audience, is the fact that American troops stationed in foreign nations are allowed to carry weaponry, loaded weaponry, on the base, but they are not allowed to take it outside of the confines of the base. Mm-hmm. And in fact, on the third night, these men left with weapons. Larry uh, had a loaded M16, and when they arrived on this logging road, after they passed the east gate of Woodbridge and made their left, hence the conjugation that we draw from for part of our title, um, they went up the road about a quarter mile where it widens. I've walked that road many times. The vehicles parked, the men disembarked, and an armorer's vehicle pulled up. That is specifically a military variation of a pickup truck with racks welded on the back, and weapons were turned in so that nobody went out into that field armed to the best of my knowledge. I was talking about this with my girlfriend, and she was sort of surprised that soldiers would theoretically be sent out, because let's just, just clarify some things here. They weren't going out on, on, of their own volition. They were being ordered to go out and investigate. You got that right. So now they're being ordered to go out and investigate something that is essentially unknown, yes. so no one knows if it's dangerous or not, Yeah. and they're being sent out without weaponry. Yeah, but these are not British troops. These are American troops who, by virtue of our treaty with Her Majesty's government, are strictly not allowed to leave base with loaded weapons. Even so, if there was an invasion on the U.K., they couldn't Well, that I don't know. I would imagine there would be a rational suspension of that edict if the U.K. were being invaded and allied troops were stationed there and asked to join in the defense. One of the things about this whole issue of the weaponry, and Gene, you can remind me if it was uh, Jacques Vallée, who might have either commented on our show or I seem to remember hearing or reading a quote from Vallée, and if anybody wants to uh, you know, inform me that I'm incorrect about this, I'm happy to, to, to take the blame. But there was this sense, and I think it was Vallée who had said that he felt that this whole thing was a psyops operation and one of the reasons he said that was because the guys were not allowed to take their weaponry out into the investigations you know basically so they wouldn't hurt anybody and and, and again i don't remember whether he said that on our show or i read this that he wrote this somewhere and i thought to myself because i i sort of knew that usually the case is that in most military bases the soldiers can't leave the base with weaponry. And I was kind of surprised that Ballet had said that, besides the fact that in terms of uh, the whole thing being psyops, that didn't really make sense to me in terms of the details that have emerged and that are emerging in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But, and I'll, I'll qualify this, Peter, mm -hmm. I actually bought a copy of the ori original American edition of Left East Gate yeah. just shortly after we started doing the Paracast. So I don't have the good edition. I'm sorry about that. Okay. Okay. I remember when I, when I was reading this, and I got to the point where uh, Warren talks about being taken to this underground location. Oh, yeah. Being shown films. Oh, yeah. Of, of, that was you know, in the debriefing, and I didn't mention that. That was not underground. Oh, okay. Films were shown in the legitimate debriefing uh, the next day before this being taken against his will to this facility. Oh, okay. So let me let's. This is where again I want to clarify the timeline because sure. I haven't. It, it's been a couple of years, over a couple of years since I read the book. Me too. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so basically, 
what you're then saying is that there was a debriefing with Warren and other soldiers that were out there with him, correct? Airmen, they'd be called, but absolutely Airmen, correct. Right. And they were debriefed by rank, so all or almost all of the men in that room would have been airmen first class. Okay. Now, and again, just refresh my memory if I'm if I'm misstating this. Sure. But among the films they were shown was, and, and again, just just correct me if I'm mixing up my my episodes here. Mm -hmm. But they were shown films of amazing footage of UFO craft. Is that correct? Yes and no. Uh, yes, definitely. Let me um, lay it out and yeah, take a moment that. of our time here. After the debriefing, they were told that they would now be shown some film footage that the uh, gentleman doing the debriefing hoped would help to answer some of the questions they might still have. I think in many cases it did not and just sort of amazed them or frightened or shocked or whatever. And when the film was done, the debriefing was over and they were free to leave. So they said, we're going to show you some footage. And there's a Bell and Howell projector there, probably a lot like the ones that we used to get shown in the ancient days in school. high school or whatever. Okay. Oh, yeah. I am convinced that Everything that I'm about to describe could be real or could be fake. My deepest sense is that it may be a combination of both, and it went something like this. The first footage is black and white, and it's grainy, and it's wing camera footage. It's being filmed from a craft, uh, an airplane. It is, uh, we are able to see part of a craft, as I recall, and it is a World War II vintage. And we see a bright light kind of just fly through the frame. And then we cut, and the terrain below, it's more black and white wing camera footage, is much different. It's mountainous, it's rough. It is filmed from an American fighter plane looking down on, maybe it was part of a unit, a unit of Chinese MiG aircraft that would have been circa the early 1950s and we deduce I think as well as we can that this is footage from the Korean conflict in the early 1950s once again we see a bright circular shaped light come through the frame in this case though so close to the edge of the wing of the plane on the far end that the plane destabilizes and starts to spiral out of control and the wing camera footage stays on it as it gets smaller and smaller and then we see an explosion on the ground cut it's now color eight millimeter probably of one guy taking photos of a GI in a very tropical area he's wearing um, the kind of helmet uh, that they wore in World War two but it's obvious this is the Vietnam conflict this guy as I recall has his shirt off, has a shotgun over his shoulder, a bandolero of shells, and he's mugging for the camera, just, you know, macho guy stuff. And then at a certain point, the camera kind of shakes and comes back to the guy, and he's pointing. And the camera goes out into the forest, and we see a giant black triangular-shaped shape rising slowly from the forest, and we see bits of forest canopy dropping off of it, and it rises in the air. The camera comes back to the guy on camera who does this giant shoulder shrug and then bang. And this is once again an area where I feel this could easily have been done in a studio uh, or it's real or who knows. Um, I think this is studio stuff, though, that we see an astronaut um, in full, you know, regalia that they would wear in space standing on 
what purports to be the surface of the moon. And you can tell by the background that this individual is in a crater. Now, none of the missions we know about landed in craters. So it's either studio stuff or there were missions that we didn't know about. And he's just standing there. And at a certain point, you see him look up and with his hand indicate up. And the camera pans to the edge of the crater where we see several disc-shaped shapes seemingly sitting at the edge of the crater. And then the, the film on spools and it's over. They're not told anything? Correct. At that point, and they were told, when this film is over, you're free to leave. So it really didn't help explain. It just kind of blew their minds, I guess. And it was a, um, again, I think this information in that some of it may have been fact. Certainly, we there is wing camera footage of UFOs, and some may have been fiction. Has anybody else corroborated seeing that footage? As I recall, Greg Batram does, and his testimony is in the follow-up edition. Forgive me because it's been several years since I put that together. Mm -hmm. um, and to the best of my knowledge, and I say this um, not to be mysterious, but because I have to honor certain confidences, one of the other men involved has confided absolutely that he remembers seeing the footage in detail corroborates Larry's account and has made it very clear that he does not want his name involved. I do this as little as possible because it's a device that, well, it seems dramatic. It can be just a cop-out depending on how your audience feels about me and my ethics. I'm very pleased to say nobody has ever called me a liar to my face in more than 30 years in this field. I. My reputation is the most important thing to me, and I guess you guys will have to take my word on that. And that, that's fine. In, in the other research work you, you've done, have you ever, ever, ever come across anyone else describe seeing footage like this? No, but I have done almost no other work of an intense military UFO case nature. Literally, all of my other research and investigation has been in the civilian realm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and I have to stress here that when I met Larry, um, and I think my intuition was correct, um, there are a lot of guys out there, some who I know and like and admire and respect, whose accounts of their experiences in the military I do question, and whom have offered absolutely nothing, where you will see military documentation and corroborating witness uh, testimony and and I'd like to go back to that whole psyops thing because I admire Dr. Valet's work. We corresponded briefly um, many years ago, in fact, around his treatment of Randlesham in either um, Dimensions or Revelations. And I wrote to him after it came out and told him, with all due respect, I felt he was wrong in a number of areas and then supplied him information on why. And he was really classy. He wrote me back, thanked me for the information, and told me if he had had it at the time, he would have treated the subject differently. Um, but was it a PSYOPs operation? Were they using all kinds of brain-altering and high-tech and three-dimensional projections and lasers and who knows what all? Yeah, maybe, but I doubt it. And I'll tell you one of the reasons. Because when we finally returned to that spot, in that field, eight years and three months after the incident happened, 
the first thing I realized as we cleared the forest and saw the field and Larry's arm shot out, and this is all being recorded as it happens, that he literally, uh, we went quiet for a minute and we both saw the area where the thing had sat. And it was a reflex. His arm just shot out. He said, but of course, that's a coincidence that that area is discolored. It doesn't look like the rest of the field. And it's mm -hmm. kind of an oval shape. Now, I follow uh, the school of deductive reasoning, inspired in me by uh, reading my first Sherlock Holmes book when I was 12 years old. And that means that my first assumption is the most mundane and boring. My the farthest thing from my mind when he said that was, oh, man, a trace case. Look, the ground is altered. Even eight years after the thing happened, it was, hmm, could be a play of light. The field had been uh, plowed recently. Um, maybe lightning struck there last year. Maybe a nitrate fertilizer had been dumped there and not been evenly graded. But we spent several hours there, and I drew samples, returned to the States, contacted a research laboratory, they told me that the samples that I had were highly inadequate in terms of the amount. And I went back more than a year later with laboratory court containers and returned to the States with 15 or 20 pounds of soil from the site, from the edge of the site, and control samples from out in the field. Let me tell you what they found in this independent laboratory analysis. How about a cliffhanger? How about a cliffhanger? Okay. Let's do a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Peter Robbins, co-author of Left at Eastgate. And now, the rest of the story, what did that second set of samples reveal when tested by the laboratory? Mm. Number one, that the field samples were just what they would expect for soil from that part of England and that farm community that close to the North Sea. Number two, that there was, I think, four times the amount of tiny little metallic particles in the affected area as there were in the control samples. When I asked what they deduced from that, the only thing our technician was able to come up with was, it seems that something sat on that spot and generated such a powerful electromagnetic effect that it literally pulled these sand grain size metallic bits toward it 
and think about the intensity that it would take for these little samples to make their way through the soil to group in this area. Next thing, when they did seed germination tests, in other words, try to grow certain plants, in the control samples they grew normally and matured at the rate that they would expect. When they did it in the affected samples, they took much longer to take root and grow, and when they finally matured, they were mutations of the original. Last but not least, the sand in the soil was just the amount they would expect to find six miles from the coast in the control samples. In the affected area, the dispassionate phrase uh, was the sand was no longer sand. It had been reduced to an interim form of glass. That, besides the military documentation, I was able to pull together the multiple witnesses, the historic accounts of other UFO incidents in the area going well back to the Cold War, suggest to me that this was not a PSYOPs operation. Let's go back to that soil uh, sample issue for a minute, the soil analysis. The plants not growing as well in the sample that have been taken from the landing site. Sure. In the work that, that Ted Phillips has done with trace evidence cases, it seems that one of the byproducts of this whole thing is that, specifically, the soil loses its ability to a large extent to absorb water. Boy, is that correct, and I was just about to jump in there, if I might. Yeah. Um, before any formal tests were done, and the samples that I first collected, which the professionals did very nicely not laugh at me when I submitted them for analysis, was a number of empty 35-millimeter plastic film canisters. They needed pounds. And I went back to our bed and breakfast with samples from the center of the area, from the edge of the area, and from different parts out in the field. Mm-hmm. And I conducted my own rudimentary experiment based on the fact that the soils looked different and felt different. The soil in the field was loamy, um, it was moist, and the soil in the affected area was dry as a bone and either clumped together or was dusty. I asked my um, host for two identical size jar lids and a tablespoon and put in, quote-unquote, the exact same amount of soil into each jar lid and then added the exact amount of water into each one. When I did the control sample, which I did first, I stirred it up, and in a matter of moments, it was nice English mud. I worked for two or three minutes on the affected sample. Even like an apothecary with a mortar and pestle, I could not get this stuff to reconstitute in mud. It either sunk to the bottom or floated on the surface. And that, to me, was a tremendous red light. I have to tell you, it was very exciting and why I followed through in bringing 15 pounds of soil back to American customs and go through the indignity of explaining what it was about. Oh, yeah, I'm very curious about this before we go on. What did you tell the customs people, and what did they say to you in oh, approving it? Oh, beautiful. You'll love this. As we're coming in toward JFK, you know, I get my card to fill out. You know, you're not allowed to bring in produce, meat, over $10,000. That was no problem. And for the first time in my life, I noticed that there is something where you check for soil. And I thought, oh, crikey, as they say in Suffolk, I don't want to go through this nonsense. And I know where it's going to end up. I'm going to have to talk about UFOs to American customs officials. I don't want to go this route. I'll bet my chances are excellent that this is pre-9-11 by many years, and they're not going to go through my, you know, it's going to work out fine. And then I thought about it, and I realized, you know, if I do that, and if these samples bear up, and I publish, 
and somebody like, say, well, one of you gentlemen asked me a question like this in the public realm and then does their homework and maybe is able through a FOIA to establish that there is no record of my bringing this soil into the country or accuse me of doing it legally and unethically, I would have to concede. And I just took a deep breath and checked soil. Going through customs and they read this and open your case and here are these laboratory court containers with printed labels on them, um, control, affected, edge, pounds of it. <laughs> and they say, come with us. And I am taken to the proverbial little room and am asked to take these out. And I have one guy who is with me. And he says, so what is this? I said, well, um, it's soil from a field in England that's going to be analyzed for part of a book I'm working on. And he said, right, what's the laboratory? Whoa. And I say, well, it's um, the Springborn Environmental Laboratory in Ware, Massachusetts. And the son of a gun takes down a loose leaf and he starts going through it. He says, yeah, it's an accredited lab. Okay. He says, what's the story? I said, well, um, I, my co-author had some stuff happen to him when he was stationed in England, the Air Force, and the soil bears on the story. How does it bear on the story? Well, he was involved in an incident um, that was considered a security incident on base. Now he's drilling. What kind of incident? And I realized, oh, dear, I've got to say the three men. you got to do it. Yeah, you got to do it. Yeah, and I say, um, an alleged UFO landing. And he says, right, wait here, please. And he leaves the room, and I hear a click. <laughs> Me and the dirt are now locked in. And I'm thinking, maybe this wasn't the swiftest decision I've ever made. I guess about two or three minutes passes, and he returns. I'm not spinning this, guys, with three other customs officials. And now there are four of them. And he comes back. He says, okay, what happened? I said, what do you mean? He said, tell us the UFO story. <laughs> And they're all looking at me really earnestly like, what's going This is, And for the next 10 minutes or so, I sat there like I am with you, and I laid it out. And they're all looking at each other and looking at me and looking at the dirt. And he says, right, are you going to open this? You know, like all the Martian germs are going to come out. I said, no, it's going out by FedEx tomorrow to Massachusetts. He said, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're not going to. I said, oh, yeah, no, I swear. You can see it's taped closed. I've got the containers at home. I'm shipping it. And they all look at each other. And he says, well, good luck with the story. This is fascinating. And me and the dirt leave JFK and head back to Manhattan. True story. Sounds almost like something that the late Paul Harvey would have told. He good. would have said, <laughs> or he would have said, and now the rest of the story. Hey, man, you live for stuff like that when you're a nonfiction writer. And ultimately, I'm delighted to have that account to pass on because it is part of the fabric of this whole tale. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 
1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. Our fabric is the Paracast. Our guest is Peter Robbins, and we're talking about dirt. <laughs> Soil, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's keep it, keep it respectable. I'm yeah. sorry I couldn't resist it. The devil made me do it. It's all right. It's understandable. The devil's all about it. So uh, something that's been bothering me about Holtz contacting his, his higher-ups yes. through the chain of command sure. asking about this NSA attention. Mm-hmm. Help me out here, Peter. I will if I can. He goes on record saying he gets the quickest response he's ever gotten from these guys, and they say, yes, the NSA was looking into it, and it's none of your business. Yes. That doesn't make sense to me. How so? Well, if you're not going to give the guy details, why even call him back? Number one, because he is a ranking, respected military officer who was at the time of the incident the deputy base commander of this highly right. secured NATO base. I mm-hmm. think that in my non-military mind is what we call a professional courtesy. I'll give you an example that I do know from fact. The late Barry Goldwater, who was a reserve general in the Air Force, I'm sure you guys know, was a serious student of UFOs. Yeah, absolutely. Believed in the extraterrestrial hypotheses and there are several letters on record on senatorial stations most of us have copies of them in our you know archives and in one of them he says I asked Curtis LeMay and if that name doesn't ring a bell to some of your listeners if you've ever seen Dr. Strangelove that is the real-life general that this brilliant black satires uh, character played by George C. Scott was based on this was a tough no-nonsense cold warrior cigar chomping son of a bitch head of the Strategic Air Command at the time. He said, I asked General LeMay what we had in uh, Hangar 18 in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he looked at me and I said, and said, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that's none of your damn business and don't ever ask me again. I guess that wasn't a professional courtesy in that case. It was just, I don't care if you're a ranking senator and a reserve general in the Air Force. That's none of your damn business. And again, this was Hall that told me this to my face. So I'm just repeating what I know to be an accurate representation. What else did Hall tell you off the record? I think there was one other thing. He told us about, you know, this fast contact return on the NSA uh, for his information. He told us about the beams of light penetrating uh, the hardened bunkers and 
uh, adversely affected in the ordinance. I'm as sure as I can be told us one other thing. Please forgive me. This was like 18 years ago and oh, in a, a 540-page book. I'm forgetting it, but it's in there in both editions at the end of the book. All right. There was one other thing. If you want, I can actually take, you know, up to 60 or 90 seconds of time and pull a book off the shelf and find it for you. No, that's okay. That's all right. I'll actually, okay. we'll, you know, we'll do some follow-up after the fact. Yeah. And maybe we can even get you to make personal appearances on the Paracast forums because I'm suspecting that uh, our listeners and forum members are going to have questions for you after this episode airs. And it'd be really great, Peter, um, because you're you're obviously very immersed in this. It'd be really, really great if you could participate on our forums. I'd be honored uh, to. We actually do have a fair number of notables who come on there. Frank Warren, Paul Kimball, Greg Bishop has joined us recently. Now, you know, um, Greg and Paul are dear friends of mine. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Okay, you've got it. We expect yeah. that to be a commitment on your part. I, uh, I am worthy of committing, so I uh, count on it. Well, some people say I should be committed, but I didn't want to get into that on this kind of show. <laughs> I'd be glad to. All right. So the book comes out, and obviously uh, the book is a pretty well-respected book. Do you get any pressure from the government at all about your involvement in this book? Not once the book was out, but I was feeling the pressure intermittently when I was working on it um, in a number of respects. In fact, it changed my behavior and not for the best. I, I went through the most paranoid uh, period of my life. And let me give you a brief story that sums it up for me. When I became involved, of course I wanted to write something that would put me on the map. I wanted a chance to really test my wings to become somebody that was respected in the field, to do the work. I am not just somebody who really likes being out in the field and traveling. I like libraries. I like research archives. I like doing the academic detective work. And I'm also good with people. I was brought up that way. I'm a very social person. I worked for eight years as a crisis intervention volunteer on the busiest suicide hotline in the United States. So although I'm not a mental health professional, I've got some qualifications. I also um, came up through the ranks with Bud Hopkins, who is a few months ahead of me. We both got into it at the same time. We did our very first talks together. And of course, Bud went on to become an absolute meteor and the most highly respected person arguably in the field. And I was his assistant for a dozen years or so, unbroken, and then on and off for 15 more years and worked literally hundreds of abduction-related case studies with him. So I'm pretty seasoned. And when the book came out in the United Kingdom, it came out the same week that Tony Blair became prime minister, and we sent his office a copy for him. Thank goodness nobody read the book before responding, or they might not have written us back on uh, 10 Downing Street stationery. But we have several letters from the Prime Minister's office uh, thanking us and acknowledging receipt of the book, which he looked forward to reading. But if he has, he never let me know. And the next thing we know, we're in England doing a 15-city, one-month-long speaking tour. We've got a rental car. We've got a cell phone, very exotic at the time in my book, 1,000 pounds for incidental, doing BBC radio every day, driving all over the country, speaking at large venues as large as uh, 1,000 people at the um, 
Royal College of Art and Technology in London and as small as the back room of pubs uh, in Yorkshire or bookstores. Anyway, um, at one point, we're in the village of Woodbridge in Suffolk, and this is really a special one because it's the largest town to the site where these things happened. It's mm-hmm. just a few miles away. And so we got the hometown crowd there, and it was a great success. The line went out the door. We signed books for three hours. We sold close to 100 copies. That's pretty damn good for a book signing. And we were at a table. I sat there. I signed. I passed it to Larry, one person after another. And at a certain point, a woman steps forward. And she was different than anyone else in two respects. Her face was implacable. She was not happy, and she did not have a book. And she said, do you know who I am? I said, no. And she said, quote, unquote, I'm Brenda Butler, and I have a bone to pick with you. Brenda was one of the very first researchers, and I mean within 24 hours, to get involved in Great Britain. She's a well-known paranormal and UFO researcher there. And along with the better-known Jenny Randalls and the lesser-known Dot Street, they wrote the very first book on the Rendlesham Forest incident. It's called Sky Crash, and it was published in 84. Brenda has long since made it clear that they were misled in some ways through contacts they had. They published information that was erroneous. They got some details wrong. Who doesn't? But I hold them in esteem for being the first. They were pioneers and, you know, even more difficult in this male-dominated business to be women. But they got it rolling. And in the autumn of 1987, when I was just getting started, Larry suggested I write to her. And I did. And at that point, we had planned for what was going to be our first and only trip over. I introduced myself, told her who I was. She knew who Larry was. They had spent time together, and she had interviewed him earlier in the uh, period. And um, said I'd very much like to meet with her and you know, compare notes and dialogue on this. And she wrote me back. And this was in the day when you wrote a letter, and you put it in an envelope, and you mailed it out. And we did. Well, a few months later, we're in England, and we're on location. And as you know from reading Left at East Gate, my mind was blown the very first night when we were in the area. We had a major multiple UFO sighting, and I dare say incident, which we recorded. Uh, I carried recorders with me all the time for years, and we got most of it on tape. Those tapes, by the way, have been voice stress analyzed and have come up showing no kind of false faking of emotion. We're freaking out. That was the very first night, not a mile from the perimeter of RAF Bentwaters. And that transcript, I think it runs 18 pages, and it's included in Left at East Gate. Well, that freaked me out enough that I never did get in touch with Brenda. And the week flew by, uh, very interesting and rather unnerving, and I returned to the States. And then wrote Brenda, apologizing for not contacting her and never heard back from her. And I thought one of several things about that. Either, you know, she was a bit miffed that I never did call, or that the letter got lost in the mail, or that, you know, something had come up. I didn't really think that much of it. Nine years passes, and we're back to this moment. And I say, Larry, look, it's Brenda. And he goes off in the corner, he chats with her a minute, and he says, um, Brenda has something she wants to talk to us about. I hope you don't mind. I invited her to have lunch with us. And I said, oh, that's fine. And the book dealer took the three of us out to lunch at a nice pub. Well, I don't know about you guys. Have you ever had lunch with three other people where one of them completely ignored you through the entire meal? You know, there ain't a lot of places to go. She wouldn't look at me. And over (laughs) coffee, she turns and looks at me, and she says, Peter, 
I wasn't kidding. I, I really have something uh, that is bothering me and I have to discuss with you. Let me have it. She said, you know, you wrote me. I wrote you back. I was looking forward to seeing you and speaking with you and developing a professional relationship. You get to town. You call me. Introduce yourself and say, hi, you know, um, let's, let's meet on Wednesday at, you know, 3 o'clock at the Cherry Tree Inn, which is about a mile or so from where I'm staying. Oh, I, she knew where that was and she went. And I never showed and never had the courtesy to call her. And I said, I'm listening to her say this. And you're like, huh? The hair on the back of my neck is going up. I think it's yeah. coming. And I said, number one, Brenda, I'm not that kind of person. If you get to know me better, and I hope you will, whether it was business or social, I would have called and apologized. Brenda, I never called you. And it was one of a handful of times in my life where I was looking at somebody as their complexion changed. She went white. And she said, oh, my God, I believe you. And then we both got scared. And I realized, we both realized at the same moment, when I entered England, I tripped some kind of bell. Somebody with an American accent who could have only known about this by physically steaming open a letter, reading the letter, resealing it, and delivering it, called her, gave her erroneous information, and for the cost of a 10p call, put a wedge between arguably um, certainly the best informed and the most dedicated researcher on this one topic in the United States, and I am that. Nobody else has been crazy enough to do it. Uh, and a key researcher in the UK. And it was chilling to realize that. A little flattering after the fact. When we first returned from England, though, I was on information overload. I lived on East 46th Street, around the corner from the UN. And within weeks, I was hearing clicks and taps on my phone. I don't spin stuff. I tell it as it is. It's this almost sounds like the John Keel stuff where people would call and pretend to be John Keel over the years. Well, and just I should mention just very quickly yeah. to kind of interrupt you, we've learned and this show won't be heard till early May, but mm. we've learned that John Keel is quite ill and back in the hospital. And oh we, darn. And we do hope that he will be feeling better. Hopefully in the near future, we send yeah. our best wishes to John Keel and his family, if any, for his yeah. speedy recovery. But it just sort of raised the issue, though, of the fact that over the years in the UFO field, there have been reports of this nature, and Keel was one of the people to bring it to attention, yes. that people call and pretend to be somebody else. Yeah. Could it have possibly been just somebody, instead of flagging you or following you, playing some kind of hoax? But how well, would they know? How would they know? Her? Yeah. The only right. person in the world that knew that I had written to Brenda outside of Brenda was Larry. Right. The only way anybody could have known, because I didn't call Brenda, it was never discussed on a phone line with Larry or anyone else before departing. The contents of that letter, which was typed on an IBM Selectric typewriter, there was no chance of, you know, information theft, was literally by mm -hmm. intercepting and opening that letter that went from the United States Postal Service to the Royal Mail and was delivered to her intact. Now, let me also say, this only happened to me once. People in England that we stayed with, who the Warnock family, who were on location and are family-like to me now and who I'll see in September when, uh, after I finish speaking uh, at a conference in Liverpool and going back down to Suffolk to the area, they sent materials to me that were opened officially and then resealed. Larry had material opened and resealed. This is the only time it happened to me. That would be one incidence, but again, going back to 1988, March, I started hearing 
you know, weird sounds on my phone. Again, deductive reasoning. I'm not caught up with my own romantic position as a pioneering, courageous researcher. I'm amazed the phones work so well in New York City. I'm in the middle of it, and how come there aren't more disturbances like this? But they got worse. And I mentioned it to a a very technically uh, adept friend of mine who said, I have a friend who works for the phone company. And on his own time, he installs, and he could run an impedance check. And I paid the guy 50 bucks. He came in. He did a whole bunch of stuff with some tools, electronic tools he had, and said, your phone is being monitored, probably intermittently. I couldn't tell you who, but it's being monitored. My reaction was shock. And I think I responded with a certain amount of indignancy. And I said, well, that couldn't be because the purpose of monitoring a phone is surreptitious information. And if they're making noise, you know, then I'm on to them. He said, no, there are two reasons that phones are monitored historically. That is one of them. The other is to emotionally unnerve the person or put some fear into them. My socializing habits changed. A woman I was seeing who was a foreign national working at the UN with a green card, I felt I would compromise her job with the United Nations and broke off with her, which made me very sad. I didn't answer a lot of calls for the next two years. Uh, Close friends and family kept in touch with me. I withdrew tremendously and became quite a recluse. Went through my savings, went through my 401k, started selling stuff. At this point, I was obsessed. And it wasn't to get to the truth about little green men and flying saucers. I had become incensed about what I think the NSA, but certainly agencies of officialdom, are willing to do to keep people like Larry and some of the decent young men and women who joined up for the same old-fashioned reasons that people joined the service for, I'm sure, several thousand years, see the world, wear a uniform, you know, make an impression on somebody, visit a foreign place because they love the country. Remember, this is right after the Iranian hostage crisis and all of the Vietnam anti-military feelings are, are, you know, now in the past. And Larry was part of that crop of high school graduates that say, I want to serve my country and see the who in England, you know, wear a uniform and all that. So I also, as I realized, I'm attacking the NSA, and I developed more information making me feel that they were the ones running the show. I did get scared, and I realized if I wanted my peace of mind and maybe even my safety, I would make a simple rule that I told no one, as in no one, until the book was published. And it went like this. If I am ever approached by individuals who can credibly identify themselves as members of this super secret intelligence uh, group or other credible people within government, military or intelligence who tell me I should stop doing what I'm doing or I might not be healthy or I might get hurt, then I'll decide what to do. But if they say, you know, your niece could fall off a swing or your mom could have a heart attack or your sister could get sick, that was it. I was out of it. Nobody ever did. But the information that I developed on the NSA, I kept on a separate disk that I kept hidden in, you know, a box in my house. And the day that I brought the manuscript to the publisher, I came back a second time. And you know what? I'm going to say it flat out because I was very nervous. I was carrying a knife and I was carrying a mace aerosol in my pocket. And I was, if anybody got in my face, I was ready to hurt them. And when I turned that disk over for integration into uh, the text of 500 pages that I had already submitted, I walked out of there and I felt 
a year younger. And I made it very clear in promoting the book that I was holding nothing back. Mm. This was it. It would only, um, the implication being, I hoped, and I think is what happened, if there was any interest in seeing me hurt or uh, punished or in any way uh, attacked, it would only draw information to me. If I walked out of there and was legitimately hit by a bus, half the people I knew would have assumed I was murdered. I'll tell you what, once that book was in galleys, my world lightened up tremendously, and by the time it was published and we were in England, I felt younger than I had felt in 10 years and very proud of what we had accomplished. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Peter Robbins, co-author of Left at Eastgate, and we're going into incidents where you may have been subject to harassment by the government. Okay, so after the book came out, all the stuff stopped completely? Cold turkey? Yes, all of it. Now, we don't have much time left, yeah. and I have still have a couple of questions. Warren describes seeing three beings in some sort of a particle cloud, correct? No, um, in a glow. In a glow. All right. Yeah. And the They're glow standing is seated, on... and you want the description that I have um, that Larry yes. was very carefully given to me. First, they were not quite like any I've ever seen represented in the real literature or in science fiction. They were about the height of archetypical greys, three and a half feet or so, four feet, I forget exactly the description. They were stocky. They seemed each to be in like a one-piece form-fitting garment, for lack of a more descriptive term. They did have huge, dark, sweeping eyes and only a suggestion of what we would call a nose and a mouth, and they were floating about a foot off the ground, and if that isn't enough, you could kind of catch light through them. They were semi-translucent, and as the glow receded, they could be viewed much more clearly. Did they attempt to communicate with him at all? Let's remember that I think by classic statistics, and I'm grabbing this one out of the air, but I think in a psychological study I read at the time, 78% of human communication is nonverbal. They stood there. They looked out. Our guys looked at them, the ones that were in proximity to see them. There have been a lot of mythology and rumor that we helped repair their craft, like we carry those parts, or that we exchanged, you know, uh, an officer exchanged a candy bar for a machine from Mars, who knows what. What I have is a description that that officer who stepped through that cordon of men in civilian dress mm-hmm. got somewhere between 10 and 15 feet of them and was tall, 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and even if they're floating, they're not five feet off the ground. And small moments mean a lot to me and reading between the lines. It's been described to me that when he looked down at them, 
all three of them at the same moment adjusted their heads slightly up at the same moment but there was no overt communication per se if you're just staring at somebody though I guess that's communicating but I, I would not over romanticize or over dramatize that it was a face off how does it resolve itself according to Warren oh yeah um, again we only have second and in my case third hand information because neither he nor I were there what we understand through sources who allege they were there or say they heard from people who were there is and I as far as I know nobody who was there when the thing left has ever come forward publicly the beings dimmed and it was understood without a door opening that they quote-unquote went back in the craft rose slightly tipped slightly and then took off and in a very short time was no bigger than a star and disappeared and that would have been an hour or so, I believe, after Larry uh, had been taken off the line. All right. Now, this is going on three nights. The big event happens on the third night. Mm -hmm. Help us out here, Peter. Mm -hmm. These guys are sent out to investigate without weapons mm -hmm. and no cameras? Oh, no. There were cameras on location. Ah, this okay. was... Still filmed by Air Force personnel, it was video filmed, and remember, this is video in 1980. You're talking about big, bulky, highly identifiable cameras. Yeah. It was, as far as I know, film filmed, and two bobbies from Woodbridge, two British police officers, made their way out there. One of them had a camera, and it was confiscated by Air Force personnel, and there was a bit of a fricas. No, this was fully filmed. Those okay. films, we well, Chuck DeCaro, who was CNN's military and technology correspondent who um, helmed the special report in 1984, who we met with uh, at length several times, and, and an extensive interview with him talking about all this stuff is included also. He submitted a list of, um, I don't remember how many questions about this to the Air Force, and then proceeded to catch them in lies on the majority of the questions in ways that he could prove, which put him as a persona non grata to the Air Force for quite a number of years after. When he asked about the various types of film, he was told there had been cameras on location, still movie and video, but all the film had been fogged. And yet, in 1983, I think 84 and 85, maybe 86, once or so a year, Larry was contacted by men who identified themselves as with the NSA. They would meet at a Denny's or a McDonald's every time. There's always a fast food restaurant. And they kind of kept him hooked and interested at one point opening a folder and showing him one of the quote-unquote fog photos that wasn't fogged at all of the machine he had seen on the ground in that terrain in the forest. Oh. But there is photographic evidence I'm convinced being held in highly classified status. I don't remember reading that detail anywhere. Oh, it's in there. It's definitely in, it's in the book. 540 pages. All right. All right. Peripheral question. Has Larry Warren ever undergone any kind of lie detector or stress analysis? Yeah, well, the two the tapes that we submitted first generation, I should add, Michael. Oh, your 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 particular encounter, right? Yes. Tell us Has about Has he ever it. been lie detected? Yes. You know, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. 
quickly. Not that that's I, acceptable in courts of law. Yeah, no, understood. He's never said he wouldn't do a lie. I don't know if anyone's ever asked him, frankly. All right. Yeah. No, all data points are good data points. We don't have much time left. Hmm. Quickly, because not everybody has read the book, tell us about the encounters that you guys had near that area. Oh, boy. The very first day that we arrived, we came from London where we landed the day before, settled into our bed and breakfast. I was really excited to be in England. I hadn't been uh, in England since uh, the 70s and was more than happy to just settle in for the night, get an early start, watch TV, have a nice homemade meal with our lovely host and hostess. At dusk, Larry was staring out the window. Um, our, the room that we shared looked out on the Rendlesham Forest. He turned to me. He said, uh, well, there's the forest out there. You want to head out there tonight? And my very first thought was not on a bet. Are you serious? I'm tired. There's ghosts and witches and aliens and all kinds of spooky crap out there. Let's go tomorrow morning. And, of course, I wasn't going to back down or seem like a wuss. And I said, sure. And he said, good, let's get ready. And without a meal, as it was getting dark, we packed up. I did have an Nikon camera with me and several rolls of black and white film. It didn't even occur to me to bring it. It was night. There was going to be nothing to photograph. Mm-hmm. I always carried two micro cassette recorders and plenty of tapes because machines break down and I wanted to be able to record things as they were happening. Popped them in my pockets, and we headed out onto the road, and it was now dark. Of course, the first thing he told me was, you know, the night that it happened eight years and three months earlier was a lot like this. It was temperate. There was no moon. I'm delighted about this. And we make our way to the base, and the non-secured parts of the base are open. That's the way it is, uh, or was in England. And we wandered around, and this is where I live. This is where um, we used to meet up to go on guard mount. This is the mess hall. This is where we came back to after the incident. It was an amazing walk. And we realized we were hungry, and we turned the corner, and there, like some hallucination, was a Burger King. And we walked in. It was like any Burger King in the States, except that it was just filled with Air Force men, women, and Air Force children. And we had a couple of American bucks in our pocket. It was all American money. And we had enough money to buy, I think, a burger and a cheeseburger. And I was so distracted, I ate Larry's burger, which he was not happy about. I don't want to rush up here because we're down to our last three and a half minutes. Uh, Well, anyway, um, when we left the base, we started to walk. And it's completely dark. And I observed an elliptical-shaped light over the forest. And I called Larry's attention to it as I turned on the tape recorder. And I said, does that look like a tipped ellipse to you? And he said, yeah. And we watched as it started to glow and then drop into the forest. Then other lights appeared, zigzagged. At one point lit up the forest as though there were 100 Klieg lights in there. Something appeared in the field with windows on it. I was freaking out. And Larry wasn't doing much better. It was going on for an hour and a half and was still going on when we walked away. Was the base decommissioned at that point? You know, no, the base was decommissioned in the early 90s and is now okay. uh, privately owned and being developed for civilian purposes. And they don't find the underground bunkers with strange alien creatures? They haven't found that door uh, that I'm aware of. That's and level S4. No, no, now. wait a minute, that's Area 51, um, excuse me. Yeah, some maintain that it's a base with humans and non-humans. I'm not so sure about that, but I am convinced that there is a huge, at least stadium-sized, underground facility below that twin base complex, no question about it, and it probably has tunnels that go out many miles in different directions, and I'll tell you why at another time. You're giving us a cliffhanger. You're saying... I'm also putting myself... You know, you guys are tough. Ooh, I heard about you, but boy...
boy, you you know, I, well, we I told you you could ask me anything, but I didn't think you would. I guess well, we have means maybe I've got to come back sometime. Here's oh, the thing God. that you have to do, Peter. Peter, we, we've been gentle. You know, gentle as lambs <laughs> to you. I mean, you have to see the way we've treated a few people that we will not mention because they deserved it. But seriously speaking, Peter, you've been one of our great guests, and as a result, you're, you have no choice now but to go to forum.theparacast.com and join our forums and yep. become a very, very active participant because you basically have no choice. And well, the I other thing, of course, also, and we'll I'm help back. you. We'll help you get a Mac. Don't worry about one. We'll talk <laughs> off the air. And the other thing you have to do also, by the way, is you have to come on again because we have other questions to ask, not just about this, but about yeah. the other things you've done. You're not a one-trick pony. You basically did more than Rendlesham and more than have a few sightings with Larry Warren You've and be harassed by the NSA or whatever. You've had other things happen to you. One sighting with Larry Warren, that's enough for a lifetime. And you know what? Completely seriously, you guys have an extraordinary reputation. I'm not much of a net person. I do my work and then get off and write. But you are highly respected, especially because you're hard-hitting. It's been a privilege to be on the air with you, and I will look forward to our, our, our next get-together. And thank you for not pulling your punches. It does not serve the truth, and it does not serve the truth about this story. And I salute you guys for your tremendous contributions in the field. I salute you for being a terrific guest. Thanks, pal. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.